take your Bibles to the book of Song of Solomon, chapter number 1. Song of Solomon, chapter number 1. And we're going to continue our verse-by-verse study through this, uh, this book, this mysterious book that many, many people have uh, battled with, struggled over, wondered why it was in the Word of God. And I, uh, we're, uh, we're going to continue marching through this. And I hope that uh, it is as profitable this week as it seemed to be last week. All right. Once you've found chapter 1 and verse number 9, if you're able to, if you would stand for the reading of God's Word. And we'll be going from verse 9 down through the end of the chapter this evening, but um, we'll just look at the three, first three verses uh, to begin here. Now, for context, King Solomon comes in to his palace where this young girl has been kidnapped and brought into his presence. She's there waiting for him, and he shows up, and Solomon is going to try to do what he does best. He's going to try to woo this girl into a quick wedding and just sweeping her right off her feet and getting her to marry him right away. And so that's the context here. Solomon is speaking to this girl. This is his first seduction of the girl. And the verse, verse 9 goes through verse 11. It says, I have, Solomon speaking here, I have compared thee, O my love, to a company of horses in Pharaoh's chariots. Thy cheeks are comely with rows of jewels, thy neck with chains of gold. We will make thee borders of gold with studs of silver. I battled over a couple of titles for the Bible study this evening. I looked at one title that I, I considered one title as um, the, something to do with the way Christians ought to court, the way Christians ought to date, but I ultimately landed on this title, Satan's Assault on Sexual Purity. Satan's Assault on Sexual Purity. Boy, the, the Satan has done a great job of taking this idea of sex and making it just so twisted and backwards and perverted. And what's right is considered wrong. What's wrong is considered right. And that is not just true in society. That has found its way into the hearts of many Christians as well. And so I hope that tonight the Bible study will help shed a little bit more light on the biblical position, but even uh, by showing us some examples here in Scripture of how we can take a stand for what's right in a world that's filled with wrong. Let's pray together. Lord, help us as we seek to do our best to understand uh, these passages this evening. Give us clarity of mind and heart. And Holy Spirit of God, you teach us within as the Word of God is preached and explained from without. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I want to take just a moment before I get into my notes here, and I just want to uh, address uh, something here. Um, one of the first rules of public speaking is that you're supposed to know your audience. If you don't know your audience, um, then you can give a really good lecture or in a church setting, a really good message, sermon, and it just not apply to anyone and go right over everyone's head. And so everyone that shows up to church sits down and they ask themselves this question, what does this text have to do with me? How can this help me? And that's a fair question to ask. I think that you ought to come to church and you ought to approach it in that light. How can I take the Word of God that's being taught and how can I apply it to my heart? It's very important. Sometimes when we come to church, the 
Bible is going to, we're, we're going over the whole counsel of God. My, uh, my goal over my pastorate is to cover all 66 books of the Bible, verse by verse. We go uh, verse by verse on Sunday evenings and Wednesday evenings. And it might take us 20 or 30 years, but my goal is to cover every single book of the Bible. And so that means that the whole Bible is profitable to us, even if the passage at times might touch an area in our life that's tender. Uh, we might be going over a passage that to you might not seem uh, that's all that relevant or important. And I would tell you that God's word does not return void. And I believe that what's going to be said this evening uh, is very valid for everyone's life, whether you're single or you're married, whether you're in a dating relationship or want to be in a dating relationship, whether you're in a marriage that's just, I mean, your marriage coals, the marriage fire's hot and Things are going well, or you might be in a marriage where things aren't going so well. You might be in a marriage where you sleep in separate bedrooms and you just about cohabitate and put up with each other and that's it. Wherever you are in life, whatever your situation is, I believe that the Bible study tonight uh, can be a great help to all of you. Keep an open heart and keep an open mind as we go over this material and we look at what's going on here. And I want all of us to go into this question. Satan uses that three-letter word sex to try to trip all of us up from birth to grave. Especially once a child hits the puberty years and becomes more of, uh, aware of his sexuality, boy, whether it's a boy or girl, Satan's all over trying to use that to trip us up. I have known couples who seem to be just as pure as the driven snow, faithful to church, seemingly in love with each other, as a married couple, and come to find out one of them was having an affair. I've heard of pastors who've had affairs. I've heard of pastors' wives who've had affairs. If it can happen to a pastor and a pastor's wife, it can happen to you. I've known of people in church who were, were single in their adult years, and Satan's gotten them with that three-letter word too. So all of us, no matter you are single or married, all of us are capable of slipping up in this area, and all of us need to be on our guard. And I would also remind you here uh, of what Paul said. Paul said, and I believe it was Second Corinthians, he said, I keep my body under subjection, lest that when I have preached to others... I myself might be a castaway. He said, I have to stay on my toes. So I just wanted to uh, get that out of the way before we jump uh, into the notes I have prepared this evening. All right, here we go. Satan takes what God creates and he contaminates it. That's what Satan does. And really that's what sin is. Sin is the taking of what God's created and twisting it and perverting it and contaminating it and then selling it to us as though it's better than God's Version, okay? Human sexuality is one of God's many, many wonderful ideas. And in Christian culture, at least the Christian culture that I have grown up in, human sexuality has been taboo. Taboo. I believe that Satan has taken Christians' unwillingness to discuss this topic and he has exploited it. Now, let me just say to the parents in the room this evening, if you have children at home, please listen and please listen well. You need to be the one that discusses sex with your children. You do not need to leave that up to the public schools or the Christian school. You do not need to leave that up to the TV. You don't need to leave that up to the kids in your neighborhood or any more of the kids in the chat room where your kids play video games. That conversation needs to be had from you to them. Now, look, I, I have children, and I'm at that age where we're 
addressing those things and talking about that. And I'm also somebody's child, all right? I was a little guy once, and I can remember my dad having the talk with me. And it was very, very uncomfortable. It was uncomfortable for him. It was uncomfortable for me. It was very generic. And I, I walked away feeling awkward, and I walked away knowing he felt awkward, and uh, we never really ever talked about it again. And I'm not throwing stones at my dad. I've talked to a lot, a lot of people who were who are my age, or a lot, a lot of people that are my dad's age, and generically talked about this topic. And it sounds like that's sort of how it was for everyone uh, from that era. That's just how it went. I will say this though: at least my dad was willing to address the topic. A lot of parents today are not willing to address the topic. They're not willing to discuss it. And listen, kids are curious. One thing you learn when you go through the book of Proverbs is that simple ones have a curiosity and a fascination when it comes to sin. Now, I happened to address that curiosity and fascination with my boy before he could go get that scratch itched by the world. But can I tell you that other, uh, other curiosities are beginning to pop up. I was riding down the road with Matthew the other day, and he said to me, and again, Matthew's 11, he said to me, Dad, what are drugs? And I said, what do you mean, what are drugs? He said, well, well people do drugs. I, I hear you talk about that sometimes. What drugs do people do? Like, what are their names? What do they do to you? How do they make you feel? And I said, well, why do you want to know? He said, I just want to know, Dad. He's a simple one, and he is curious when it comes to things that are sinful. That's how it goes, and we shouldn't be rated child for that. We should know that, and we should work with them. We should work with them. Listen, uh, know how to address these topics and don't just leave it alone for the world to address it. You must view your children as a blank piece of paper and if you don't pick up the pen and write on that page, trust me, Satan has people that will pick up the pen and what they write on that page, you're not going to like. You need to be the one that picks up the pen and writes on that page. If you are a, um, a father, then you handle the boys. If you're a mother, then you handle the girls. I recommend you stick to that pattern. You say, well, I'm a single parent. What do I do? My child's of the other gender. Then you find someone that you trust deeply, and you have them have that conversation with that child. But that child needs to hear, from a biblical perspective, the idea of human sexuality. Now, when it comes to uh, uh, sex, let me just give you a couple of thoughts here by way of introduction. And, and listen, I'm not going to act awkward or be awkward. And as a church, I just ask that you sit up and you be mature tonight and uh, you handle it in a mature manner. Notice, first of all, the place for the sex act, the place for the sex act, and that's in marriage. That's marriage. Hebrews 13:4 says, marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled but whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. God will judge. God created marriage when he created Eve in the Garden of Eden and woke Adam up. And God performed the first wedding ceremony when he brought Adam and Eve together. And they enjoyed marriage and all that goes along with marriage. And so uh, the sex act belongs inside of marriage. It does not belong outside of marriage in any way. The sex act is meant to be between one man and one woman 
for life. Now that might make me uh, hateful by the politically correct culture at large to make such a statement, but my friend, uh, culture does not did not create marriage, God did. Culture does not get to define marriage, God does. And that's how God designed it, that's how God created it, and God created the sex act to be inside of marriage and only inside of marriage. That would mean that premarital sex is a sin. That would mean that extramarital sex is a sin. That would mean that homosexual sex is a sin. Sex is meant to be between one man and one woman for life. Now, this is all going to fit into the message you'll see in just a moment. Let me give you one more thought here, the purpose of the sex act. Now, I'm not going to get into specifics here, but let me just give you four purposes here, okay? And um, uh, I would recommend you write these down. First of all, partnership. Partnership. When a husband and a wife are together intimately, they enjoy a partnership on a deep level uh, that cannot be explained and cannot be felt in any other way. It is the culmination of emotional intimacy that leads to physical intimacy. This is the purpose of the sex act. It brings about uh, partnership. And then here's another word, procreation. Procreation. It is God's method to keep the human population in existence, okay? Which is another reason why two men don't work together and two women don't work together because you can't procreate in that manner, all right? God made it to where a man and a woman, their bodies work together to create more babies and keep the human race moving. And so, um, and I believe, by the way, I have these down in this order for a reason. Notice next the word provision. Provision, 1 Corinthians 7, talks about husbands and wives not defrauding each other's bodies and what's that mean? That means that you withhold uh, sexual relations from the other one and you can cause that person to sin uh, because you are not doing your part, all right? And so it's provision. The husband uh, stewards and maintains his wife's physical needs in her body and her sexual desires, and the wife is to steward and manage and take care of her husband's sexual needs and desires. So it's a place of provision. And then one more word here, and that's the word Pleasure, pleasure. There is great pleasure that God created and put with this. Now, uh, watch this, all right? At the top of the list, we have the word partnership. At the bottom of the list, we have pleasure. Now, pleasure is a part of it. There's no question about it. But what Satan has done is he's come along and he's taken the last word, pleasure, and he's emphasized it and he's made it the most important word. And I'm going to tell you right now that even within married couples, a man or a woman that emphasizes pleasure over partnership, pleasure over procreation, pleasure over provision, a husband or wife that rearranges that one to the top is a husband or wife that will never, ever, ever be satisfied within their marriage. Uh, uh, we are to take and make sure that we uh, put these things in proper order. God is a God of order. What Satan has done is he's come along and he's made the sex act first and foremost and all about pleasure, pleasure, pleasure. And what he's done is he's caused people to land in a place that's very perverted. Satan has come along and corrupted what God created. Now, uh, some, I want to share some things with you this evening. Since 1963, 1963 was the year that the Bible 
and prayer were removed from our public uh, school system. And I saw a seminar recently where someone was giving out these statistics, and so uh, I trust that these statistics are accurate. Uh, These were all resourced. I've also used similar statistics in other sermons and heard preachers do something similar. But 1963, Madeline O'Hare pushed to have the Bible and prayer removed from our public school, and evolution began to get taught on a very heavy level. And uh, we told children that they were nothing more than an accident that happened from an explosion in space from millions of years ago and that they're descendant from a monkey. And because you are a descendant from a monkey and there is no God, guess what? You can go behave however you want. And between 1963 and the next 25 years, some very startling things happen uh, to the moral fabric of this country. In fact, uh, the teaching of evolution and the removal of Bible and prayer from our school, public schools, uh, was a strong tear at the social fabric of our country. Now watch this. Between 1963 and 1975, unwed pregnancies in girls 10 to 14 years old went up 550%. 10 to 14 years old. Sexually transmitted diseases in girls the same age, ten to, really, in boys and girls, 10 to 14 years old, sexually transmitted diseases spiked by 385% and, and, and hit a, a peak in the year 1985. Now why? Why all of a sudden, after 1963, do you see this immediate rise? Well, we're not opening class in prayer and we're not reading the Bible. We're telling kids they're, they, they're descendant from monkey and there is no God and they're just going to die and go back into the ground, well, now you can go behave however you want. Um, One-third, currently, today, one-third of all babies born are born to a couple that is not married. Now, what happens when um, premarital sex becomes accepted by the culture? I can tell you what happens. Watch this now. Commitment by the father flies out the window. There used to be a day where a girl would look at a guy and say, if you want to sleep with me, then you must first marry me and take care of me. And so the male had to behave himself and had to go get a job and hold down that job. How many of you remember when that was the culture? All right, maybe 30, 40 years ago that was the culture. You didn't just go climb in the sack with somebody. No, you wanted to be with him in that way. You had to marry him. Guess what? When you marry someone... You're obligated to take care of them. And now all of a sudden, when you have babies, you're going to be more involved in that child's life. Well, now women are quicker to jump in the sack, jump between the sheets with a man that they're not married to and sleep with someone. And now we have a problem of fatherlessness where moms are raising boys and girls by themselves. Now, I'm just speaking here from pure experience. But uh, my wife and I, We work in tandem together to raise our son and our daughter. I came home from school today, and my son was very discouraged about things going on at school. You know what mom did on the way home? She gave him a compassionate, tender, loving ear. You know what dad did when he got home? He sat down and logic with him and helped him work through to a solution. There are some things that I can do for my son that my wife will never be able to do. There are some things that my wife is able to do for my son that I will never be able to do. Likewise for my daughter. There are things I offer my daughter that uh, my mother, my wife rather will never be able to offer my daughter. And there are things that my wife offers April that I just obviously can't because I come at it from a different perspective, a different 
purview. But now because uh, sex is taken outside of marriage and is celebrated as being something that can be had by anyone whenever they want to, fatherlessness has shot up in this country. And fatherlessness has accounted for 53% of teen mothers, 63% of youth suicides, 71% of high school dropouts, 85% of youth in prison, and 90% of homeless and runaway children. When there is not a father in the home to be the backbone of that home, to be actively involved in the home of those children, mom just can't do all of it. She just can't do it all. It was never God's design. Now watch what's happened to our country over the last several generations. Three generations ago, couples tolerated each other that couldn't get along. Couples tolerated each other but refused to divorce because divorce was frowned on by society and they just had too much character to not do it. So they might sleep in separate bedrooms. They might have a uh, marriage, shell marriage only, but they refused to divorce. That was three generations ago. Now watch this. Two generations ago, uh, couples made divorce a trendy Thing. And when their marriage began to fall apart, boy, they'd start, go start getting divorce, uh, divorces, and divorces became more of the mainstream. One generation ago, people uh, decided that they were going to live together and just skip marriage outright. And their attitude was, well, if mom and dad are going to get a divorce, and it's going to be sticky and messy, and it's going to cost them a whole bunch of money and a whole bunch of lawyers, and it's going to drive the kids through all this, then why even go get married to begin with? And so they just started moving in and living together. And now watch this. This generation has blurred the lines on marriage every way possible. Three generations ago, they tolerated each other and wouldn't get a divorce. Two generations ago, divorce became trendy. One generation ago, they just started moving in together. And now we can't even define marriage. Is marriage between a man and a woman? Nope, not anymore. Not according to our Supreme Court. Marriage could be between two men and two women. And people say, well, I'm born that way. I just can't help it. Well, what about now the people on the edge? I know it's the slippery slope argument, but it's a valid argument. What about the people now who say, well, I'm born with a premonition toward children. I just can't help it. What about them? What about people who say, well, well, I have a desire to be with more than one person. What about someone who says, well, I'm in love with that animal over there. You say, oh, pastor, that's extreme. No one would say that. 30 years ago, no one thought that homosexuality uh, and marriages would be a thing. You understand that there's always going to be something on that extreme edge. And if we keep letting things move into the mainstream, something slides in and replaces it and becomes the push from the fringe to make it the norm. Now, I'm not here tonight to put down anyone in any relationship or that has any sort of feelings. In fact, as a pastor, God's called us not to be hateful or spiteful or mean. God's not called us to name call or put anyone down. Listen, I preach against premarital sex, extramarital sex, and homosexual sex all the same. I don't preach against one over the other. But I have to say this, that God is the one that created it, and God's the one that gets to define it. And you can either be in rebellion to that, or you can just submit to the Lord and say, Lord, your way is best. Satan has been doing a number on this three-letter word, and he has made, uh, rather, he's gotten sexuality to be worshipped and to be the be-all, end-all. The be-all, end-all. Men are told by culture 
to just simply follow their fleshly impulses. If it feels good, do it. YOLO. You only live once. And you know what young girls are told? They're told that if you want the acceptance of a man, then you have no choice but to give in and sleep with him. To be with him. And young girls all over this country right now who should have a dad in their life showing that manly love, lack that fatherly love, and turn to some hormonally driven teenage boy who wants nothing more, excuse the phrase, but to put his hands down her pants and all over her body, and she's willing to do whatever it takes because she's desperate for love. And the culture has told us today that real love is not found in a commitment. Real love is found in the bedroom. Satan has done his best to take sex and turn it into an idol that Americans freely and willingly and regularly worship at. The culture today here in America was no different uh, than the uncomfortable spot we find our farm girl in the story. For the time you want to give him a bump, thank you. Let me give you a, a brief recap of what's going on here in uh, Song of Solomon. Okay, uh, So everybody, right up here, listen up here. Especially those of you that weren't here the last two weeks, let me catch you up to speed here. Okay, Here's the story. All right, Everybody listening? King Solomon... Uh, he became king as a young man. This is King David's son, Solomon, okay? He becomes king as a young man, and uh, very early on, he is just overwhelmed by the job, and so he goes out for a retreat, and in his retreat, in his time away, he tells the Lord, he says, Lord, I don't know what I'm doing. I need help. And God says, I'll give you uh, one wish, and he says, I'll take wisdom. And so God gives him all the wisdom of the world at one time on the spot, and Solomon very quickly becomes rich and powerful and famous, and in his, uh, uh, in his uh, uh, rise in power, he decides that he wants to marry a whole bunch of women. And so Solomon becomes a polygamist. Solomon, when we find him in the book of Song of Solomon, I believe it's chapter 6 and verse 8, the book of Song of Solomon shows that Solomon had a combined total, watch this now, of 140 wives. That's a lot of wives. <laughs> I believe 60 of them were his wives, or 80 of them were his wives, and 60 of them were his concubines. And that's just a woman that's held on the side for sexual pleasures. That's filthy. That's wicked. That's awful. Solomon was living a vile, vulgar lifestyle, as we'll see in a minute. One day, Solomon's out and about, and he sees a girl working out in a vineyard. Her and her family owned a vineyard, a, a farm. And she's out working in this vineyard or this farm. And Solomon sees her, and she doesn't look like all the other girls in his palace. She's a working girl, and her skin's darker than theirs because of the sun. And uh, she's skinny, and, and, and she would be the American idea of beauty, but not the idea of beauty back then. Again, beauty back then was defined by being pale because you didn't have to be out in the sun, and chubby because you didn't have to work. That was a sign of wealth. This girl was not pale or chubby. This girl, she describes herself in chapter 1 as being black uh, or darkened by the sun, and uh, she's obviously very skinny. And Solomon sees her, and he wants to change things up a little bit. He is tired of the same look in a wife. And so he sends his men, and they kidnap this girl out of the field and 
force her into the palace. And so last week we looked at the first eight verses and it's a conversation between this farm girl who's forced in the palace beyond, beyond, beyond her will and the harem, the group of women that Solomon is attached to or married to. And so look back down with me at verse number 8. Verse number 8. And it says there, If uh, thou know not... O thou fairest among women, O thou little beauty queen, uh, give thy way forth by the footsteps of the flock and feed thy kids beside the shepherd's tents. These uh, girls, these brides of Solomon are telling her, listen, if your love lies outside of this, uh, of, of this uh, palace, then go on to your fiancé. Go on to your shepherd fiancé and find him and leave us alone. And that brings us to the end of Act 1, Scene 1. And again, this is a play in the Bible. And that brings us to the beginning of Act 1, Scene 2. Okay, let's jump in here tonight and let's notice point number one of the outline, uh, the forward king, the forward king. Let me encourage you to take notes, the forward king. And I would encourage you to put brackets around verse 9 down through verse number 11 and mark on the side of your Bible that this is Solomon's first seduction of the farm girl. If you don't have much room, just write the word Solomon. Solomon is speaking here, okay? And let's look at this. Let's look at Solomon's first seduction. Notice letter A, his audacity. His audacity. Look at verse number 9. Verse number 9. The Bible says, here's Solomon. Now, before we read it, let me kind of set the stage here, okay? This is how I picture it. Now, I may not quite have this right, but here's how I picture it, all right? I picture Solomon coming in on a bed. He's on a bed being shouldered by servants. And this bed is covered in tapestry. This bed is is expensive. This bed has the finest of woods. And Solomon is wearing an expensive robe. And he's laying on that bed as though he's Mr. GQ. And he comes riding in on that bed where this girl is. And he's going to do what he's done to these other 140 women. He's going to come in and just throw his suave attitude around and try to sweep her up right off her feet. Look at his audacity. Look at verse 9. The Bible says, I have compared thee, O my love, to a company of horses in Pharaoh's chariots. Now we said in the very beginning that Solomon is not a picture of Christ, but rather Solomon is a picture of Satan. And look what he does here. He comes in and says, I am comparing you to a to horses in Pharaoh's, uh, 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 Pharaoh's uh, 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 rather a group of, of Pharaoh's horses. Now, I don't know about where you come from, but where I come from, that ain't a compliment. Telling a girl she looks like a horse is not a good idea. But the culture was different back then. And you know what he was doing? He was bragging on her strength. Now, remember, remember, these other 140 girls, they're a bunch of plump, chubby, pasty white, rich girls Many of them had grown up in a palace themselves and had never done any work ever in their life. And he looks at this farm girl who grew up working outside on a farm and he sees a young lady that is very strong. And so the very first thing he does is he compliments her strength. She's toned. She's got it together physically. And he comes right out and he throws a compliment her way that makes her feel good. You know, Satan loves to build us up just before he tears us down. Isn't that what he did to Eve in the Garden of Eden? 
He said to Eve, he said, if you'll eat that fruit, you'll be like a god. Isn't that what he did to Jesus in Matthew 4? He said, he said if you'll bow down and worship me, then guess what? You'll have the kingdoms of the earth. But even before that, he said, hey, Jesus, you know you have the power to turn those stones into bread. You know what he's doing? He's building Jesus up. Hey, Jesus, you're all powerful. Turn those stones into bread. Hey, Eve, you can do whatever you want. It's your choice, Eve. And look at you. You're a powerful woman. And Satan loves to come along and loves to build us up and brag on us. You know what he'll tell us? He'll say, you know, you're just smarter than the average bear. Uh, your, your, your IQ is up there. Hey, you know what? You've got relational skills that are beyond the average person. Hey, you know what? You have a work ethic that just outpaces everyone. And he'll come along and he'll whisper some sweet nothing in your ear right before he tears you down. Here we see uh, the king's forwardness. We see his audacity. Letter B, notice his arrogance. His arrogance. Now, I have no question that after this young lady arrived in the palace, he sent her in and ordered to have her changed and put from her garb that she would have been wearing out in the farm as a vineyard girl, had her changed and put in kingly type clothing. And no doubt he had her decorated with great jewelry. Look at verse number 10. And we know that this was not the way she would have been dressed coming out of the field. Look at verse 10. He says to her, Thy cheeks are comely with rows of jewels, thy neck with chains of gold. Hold on a minute here, Solomon. Who are you bragging on? Are you bragging on this young lady or are you bragging on yourself for the gold and the jewelry that you put on her? She would not have come into the palace wearing this jewelry. You kidnapped her out of the field. No, Solomon, you're bragging on the way she looks, but you're bragging on your own money. Satan loves to do this as well. He told Eve, he said, look at you, Eve, you will be just as a god. He likes to flaunt and dangle his wealth and greed in front of us. Jesus, bow down to me and I will give you my wealth. I will give you the kingdoms of this world. Satan loves to come along and tempt God's people with his arrogance. But you know what? At the end of what Satan offers is nothing more than death and destruction. What does the Bible tell us about Satan? The Bible says he comes to do three things. To steal, to kill, and destroy. Satan will promise you the world. He'll dangle it out in front of you. But if you pursue that, he's going to steal, kill, and destroy. Letter A, we see his audacity. Letter B, we see his arrogance. We're looking at Solomon, King Solomon's forward his forward, aggressive attempt at this young lady. Let her see, notice his assumption. His assumption. Now, he just assumes this girl is going to say yes. He just assumes that because he is the great King Solomon and he's in this impressive palace that this young uh, peasant farm girl uh, is going to go from rags to riches and just take him up on this offer. Look at verse number 11 here. He says, Solomon says to the girl, we will make thee, we will make thee borders of gold with studs of silver. He's promising to build her a house. He's saying to her, after you accept my invitation, we're going to build you a house made out of gold and silver. Satan loves 
to assume that he uh, will just accept what he is selling. And can I tell you today that many people are buying in to Satan's lies when it comes to sexuality. Many, many young people are. Many adults are. Let me just say this to the women in the room today, especially those adult women in the room today that are single. Satan wants to tell you that if you'll just open up your heart to some man, you'll be fulfilled and happy. Can I tell you that's just a big fat lie? It's a big fat lie. Um, You cannot expect a man to come in and fill a void that only God can fill. I have seen in my days as a pastor a lot of women in their 40s, 50s, and 60s that are desperate for love. They're desperate for what a man they think can offer. And let me just share with you what I've seen. And I believe this is true for men as well. But let me show you what I've seen. Is when you become content as a single person, then and only then will God provide for you that potential life mate. And God at that point, if he doesn't offer it to you, you'll be okay if he doesn't. You see, contentment's a great thing. And contentment isn't saying... I'm content to be single the rest of my life. Content is saying, I'm content to be single now until God changes that status. God, I'm content in trusting your timing. Satan wants to come along and he wants to throw sin your direction to satisfy an impulse. He assumes that you'll take him up on it because so many do. And you know what Satan's just looking to do? He's just looking to devour you. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8 The Bible tells us, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. Satan is looking for that weak soul who's willing to give in to Satan's trap, and he will pounce on them. Satan is just as forward with you as Solomon was with this farm girl. Number one, we see the forward king. Number two, notice the fierce farm girl, the fierce farm girl. This young lady is going to tell King Solomon, I don't want to have anything to do with you. Listen, I I am an engaged woman, and my spouse-to-be lies outside the walls of this palace. Notice letter A, her assessment of Solomon. Her assessment of Solomon. Look at the beginning of verse number 12. And by the way, the farm girl is speaking to Solomon from verse 12 through verse 14, if you want to mark that in your Bibles, if you haven't already. 12 to 14, um, the farm girl speaks to Solomon. Look at what she says in the beginning of the verse. She says, while the king sitteth at his table. You know what she's saying to Solomon? Here you are with all your wealth. Here you are coming in here with all this food in front of you. Here you are with uh, everyone worshiping you and bowing down to you, sitting at your table. Here you are. You think you have it all. She said, Solomon, maybe you can have everything you want, but you can't have me. You can't have me. I'm not for sale. Let her be. Notice her attraction to the shepherd. Her attraction to the shepherd. Go back to verse number 12 with me there. The Bible says, While the king sitteth at his table, my spikenard... Or perfume sendeth forth the smell thereof. Hey, here you are, Mr. Solomon, sitting there at your 
fancy table with all your fancy food with your 140 wives gathered around you, uh, fanning you with palm branches and slipping grapes in your mouth and uh, bowing down to your every woman wish and their carnality and your carnality is putrid to me. She said, my perfume goes past the table and out of the palace and is in search for my love. Look down at verse number 13. Verse number 13. She continues on, a bundle of myrrh is my well-beloved unto me. Again, emphasizing the smell. Look at verse 14. My beloved is unto me as a cluster of camphor in the vineyards of Engedi. And camphor was a, 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 a bush or uh, some sort of a plant that would uh, be ground down and turn into a fine perfume. She said, my beloved is unto me as a cluster of camphor. So she talks about spikenard in verse 12, myrrh in verse 13, and camphor in verse 14. And she's saying, I can't see him and he can't see me, but uh, I can smell him and he can smell me or our odors are trying to find each other. She said, Solomon, my attraction lies elsewhere. And so we see the fierce farm girl. Notice let her see her anticipation of marriage, her anticipation of marriage. Go back to verse number 13 and notice the usage of her verbs here. Pay very close attention to that. She says, a bundle of myrrh is my well-beloved unto me. He shall lie all night betwixt my breasts. Now that might seem like it's inappropriate uh, type talk, but what is this girl saying? She's looking at Solomon who is just assuming that she's going to marry him And she's saying to him, my body is not for you. My body is for my future husband. You get your eyes off of me. She was saying to him, listen, one day when I'm married to my man, notice, look at the usage of verbs there. He shall lie. He shall lie. Future tense. One day when we're married, he will treat my chest as though it's a pillow that he can rest on. One night when I'm married to him, he can ravish himself in his love with me all he wants because my body is being preserved, not for you, Solomon. My body is being preserved for him. And you get your filthy mind off of my body, the fierce farm girl. We see the forward Solomon. Solomon replies to this young lady, notice number three, the fleshly king, the fleshly king. I get the sense that Solomon's a little bit taken aback at, at her rejection of him. She's not real happy that, uh, he's rather not real happy that she does not want to be with him and does not know how to handle rejection. Now, let me uh, kind of take it down to a G-rated level here for a minute, a PG. Everybody breathe, all right? Everybody okay? All right. How many men in here know what it's like back before you got married to ask a girl on a date and be turned down cold? Anybody here know what that's like? That's not fun, is it? That's not fun. And listen, it doesn't matter if you're rich and powerful or you're just a simple nobody. Some of you men say, I've never been turned down. I noticed Ben over here didn't raise his hand. Ben, every girl Ben asked uh, said yes. and um, yep. He probably walked into a room of girls and said, all right, everybody stand up. That one right there, I want to be with you. And all the other girls said, oh, man, ah, God. that's what happened, Sochi, right? Is that, is that how you, okay, that's how he picked you. Very good. You, you were the prettiest one of the bunch, apparently. So um, good job, Ben. Excellent. Ben doesn't know what it's like to be uh, handle rejection. But listen, for Solomon, I'm sure 
being rejected was not fun. And him being told no by her was no fun. And we get the sense of that sort of uh, here in verse number uh, 15. Look at verse number 15 here. He says here, he says, uh, he says, Beloved, or behold, thou art fair, my love. Behold, thou art fair. Thou hast dove eyes. Behold, thou art fair, my beloved. You kind of see he's stammering a little bit. <laughs> he's stammering a little bit. She told him no, and he just keeps sort of bumbling out the same phrase over and over and over again and, and just kind of running back to his compliment her beauty, compliment her beauty. The fleshly king, notice letter A, his addiction to women. His addiction to women. He was addicted to the female form. He was addicted to the sex act in a way that was immoral and impure. He was addicted to sin. Look at verse number 15 again. It says, Behold, thou art fair, my love. Behold, thou art fair. Thou hast dove's eyes. Behold, thou art fair, my beloved. Now again, all that's fine, but look where he turns it to out of nowhere. Yea, pleasant also our bed is green. Our bed is green. Now someone who wants to argue that Solomon is a picture of Jesus in this passage, I just don't see anywhere else in the Bible that Jesus talks in a sexual provocative manner. He looks at this girl he's not married to, and he says to her, you're pretty, you're pretty. Your eyes, look at your eyes. And then he pulls the curtain back to his heart and his motives, and he just goes straight for the kill. Now, most men that aren't rich and powerful and famous, at least most men would, wouldn't be this forward and blunt. Solomon, because he was used to getting his way, just comes right out with it and tells this girl what he's really after. What was he after? He wanted to get her in bed. He wanted to get her in bed. Now, the young girls in the room today, let me just, let me just tell you something. And I'm speaking as a man with male hormones. All right? Can I tell you, and I'm looking at this from a male perspective. All right? Can I tell you how men, especially young teenage boys, think? You know what they're after? They're after your body. Listen up, girls. If a man ever says to you, if you love me, you would, then that man does not love you. That man does not love you. You see, because if he loved you, he wouldn't. He would wait. He would wait. He would wait until marriage. He would wait until marriage. Now, I know some of you sitting here today say, Pastor, why do you need to speak on this? Because I am 37 years old. I have been in church for 37 years. And I have watched sexual sins slip strong into the church house and begin to grip the church and those that attend the church. This needs to be said, whether it makes us comfortable or not. But men who are walking after the flesh, men who are following fleshly impulses... Women, they are addicted to your form. They want to be with you, and they are wrong. And if, you'll, if you know what's best for yourself, you'll stay away. You'll stay away. Solomon was addicted to women. And I don't mean women in the sense of he had to be married. I mean women in the sense of the night girl, 
uh, the, the strange woman, uh, the woman who is loose, the woman who uh, will, uh, uh, will take you to bed and sleep with you, but then will be your downfall and your ruin. And so here we see that Solomon has a problem. He is addicted to women. He's talking to this Shulamite girl, this farm girl, and he says to her, oh, you're pretty, oh, you're pretty. Our bed is green. How inappropriate, Solomon. Let her be notice his attention on wealth. His attention on wealth. Look back at, uh, look back at uh, uh, rather look at the last verse of chapter 1 there. Solomon says to her, the beams of our, notice the assumptive nature here, the beams of our house are cedar and our rafters of fir. He's flaunting his wealth in her face. Hey, listen, uh, come to bed with me and then marry me and our bed will be made of the finest of woods. Our home will be made of the most lavished of wealth. He's flaunting money in her face to get her to cave and be with him and abandon her fiancé. Listen, Satan will throw a lot of things your way. Satan will flash a lot of sin your way. But God has called us to be pure in an impure world. Don't let Satan's false definition of sexuality, don't let Satan contaminate what God created. This is something God created. And listen, if God created it, we're in God's uh, uh, house, we're together as God's people, there is a mature way that Christians can get together and discuss this and talk about holding up the standard of righteousness and let's live righteous. All right, next week we're going to jump in and cover all of chapter 2. And let me just tell you, I'd like for you to read ahead if you could, okay? Chapter 2, verses 1 through 17, the entire chapter is the farm girl telling Solomon about her fiancé, the entire chapter. And watch the difference. I, I want you to do this this week. I want you to go through and read the chapter, and I want you to notice the purity of her speech as she talks about her fiancé. Her speech toward her fiancé about her fiancé is far more pure than Solomon's speech to her. And so next week, we're going to talk about courting the way Christians ought to court. The way Christians ought to court. Did you know that it's possible for a man and woman in 2021 to date each other and not sleep together before they get married? Did you know that that can still be done? Did you know that that's what God expects from you? Did you know that if you are married, God expects you to leave sexuality in marriage? And so we'll see some things about that next week as well. But we're going to look at uh, the faithful couple next week and we're going to see her description of their relationship. And that will be the entire, uh, chapter, uh, entire chapter 2. We'll cover that next week and looking forward to that. All right, I hope the Bible study was a help to you, a blessing to you tonight. I hope you learned something from it. You all survived it. No one melted in the pew and died. Amen. Let's stand together to be dismissed for a word of prayer. Let's go live pure in an impure world. Amen? Hey, we don't need to condemn or judge or berate or be mean to someone who doesn't do it the Bible way. We need to love them and let God be their judge. Amen? Amen. Love them and let God be their judge. But we ourselves need to live by what's right. Let's be, let's be dismissed with prayer. God, would you take the Bible study tonight and press it to our hearts?
Lord, help us to take um, the lead of this young lady who was put in a very difficult spot. Lord, she was tempted to do wrong. She took a stand for what was right. In the face of 140 women who were carnal and sensual and a king who is assumptive and seductive and she stood her ground. She stood for what was right. And Lord, we we praise we praise uh, praise you that you've given us her story to look at. Help us, Lord, today to leave with a commitment to purity, a purity toward your word, a, a purity toward each other, a purity within ourselves. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. God bless you. It's a joy to be your pastor. You're dismissed.